Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. I'm really delighted that this season is sponsored by Tide Business Current Accounts. I'm a Tide customer myself. It's where the account for my photography studio lives. And I've been really pleased with how they've looked after us for the last few years. They make it really easy for sole traders and freelancers to set up business accounts for free with handy tools like accounting integrations, invoicing and much more. People often think that your money isn't protected in a challenger bank or app-based bank, but Tide has FSCS protection in the UK, just like traditional bank accounts. Tide is dedicated to small businesses and whenever I've needed help, the people on the apps chat function have been super responsive. Tide helps me grow my business. Go to tide.co or download the app today to find out more about getting started. This season of The Solo Collective is brought to you by Pension B, an easy way to combine your existing pensions or start a new one. Pension B is a leading online pension provider and has enabled thousands of people to feel pension confident. I feel quite strongly about pensions. For a big chunk of my solo working life, I didn't have a pension, just an old workplace pension that I'd automatically contributed to in my early 20s. I have sorted things out now, though. I also feel strongly about women getting pensions. Women typically face an income gap of 38% compared to men when they retire in the UK, which is down to a combination of lower pay throughout our careers, taking career breaks to care for others, and women just not having their own pensions at all. This even leads to female pensioners living in poverty, as many as one in five in the UK. Download the app or head to pensionbee.com for more information. Your capital is at risk. Welcome back to The Solo Collective. As ever, it's lovely to have you with us. Today's guest is called He Jung Chung, and I have known He Jung for a while, although actually, because of the pandemic, we've never met in the flesh. Back in 2019, when I first spoke to He Jung, we talked about all sorts of things because she is really interested in the kind of things that I'm interested in. She studies the labour market and the welfare state, and she is a professor of sociology and social policy at the University of Kent. And she particularly looks at flexible work and the way that gender roles play out in couples and families where one works and one doesn't or both work at the same time and her analysis of all of that is completely fascinating. So I was interested in what she does from the very beginning and then more recently, just a couple of months ago, she published her book The Flexibility Paradox which is equally brilliant and the subtitle is Why Flexible Working Leads to Self-Exploitation. And that's kind of a tricky one, right? Because the story we're told about flexible working, which is as solo workers, something that many of us are engaged in, is that it's a kind of unerring good. It's uncomplicated, it's straightforward. More flexibility equals a better work-life balance and we can all do well from it. But what she is finding is that it's actually a rather more complex picture than that. And having the opportunity to work flexibly can actually mean that we make some really 
poor choices or poor choices are forced upon us in terms of our work-life balance and that's what she has been studying and she's been pulling together research that's taken place all over the world and she's brought it together in this excellent book. One thing I do want to point out is a lot of this conversation is around heteronormative relationships and that is because that's where a lot of the research so far has been done. That's not right, that's not okay but that is the position in which the research is at the moment. I still think you can take a lot from the research where it is. I think there are many, many messages for people of every gender and every relationship context, but the research is quite heteronormative. Although Heejung has been studying this stuff for a really long time, obviously the impact of the pandemic has changed things quite hugely. Many more of us are working flexibly than ever before. The thing that's really important is that we begin to answer the questions about the good bits and the bad bits of flexible working while we're still in this phase of figuring out what work looks like for us as individuals and for us as a society. We need not to fall into working patterns that don't suit humans, families, relationships. And I think that's why her work is particularly important and exciting because it gives us the opportunity to have discussions which we might not have if we just continue to believe that flexible working is a completely good thing, no questions. I really hope that you guys enjoy this conversation as much as we did. Thank you so much for this. I feel like this is a nice sort of, there's a nice circularity to the fact that we're having this conversation because you were one of the first people that I spoke to when I was working on the research for my book Solo. Yeah. You were very helpful and generous. And now yeah. here we are two and a half years later, I think. I like to ask this of all our interviewees, but what does your solo working life look like? Because you're an academic, but you've also written this book. Like how much time are you alone? How much time are you sort of physically alone, but mm. connected to other people through the work that you do? What? How does it all shake down? I mean, academics are quite interesting because, you know, we are employed by universities or, or other research centers, etc. But at the end of the day, a lot of the work that we do, and it depends on the discipline, but especially in the social sciences and humanities, you are quite, you know, your own kind of company, the company Hijang Chang, if you want. And, you know, a lot of the work that I do is kind of isolated, you know, working by myself or maybe perhaps with colleagues, but not necessarily like at the same time. Although now we're going in, you know, to teach and we have these online meetings, etc. But a lot of the, you know, again, you know, I need to kind of manage my own time in a way, manage my own workload as well. And also, and I love, you know, try to be a manager of my own, like, ambitions, if you want, and trying to be a nicer manager to myself <laughs> to make sure that, you know, I don't over, over exploit or over kind of stretch my own self because, Again, you know, academics are like, you know, entrepreneurs in the sense that a lot of what we do, we are kind of doing it on our own initiatives. Yeah, that's really interesting. It is really similar, actually. I guess it's slightly less precarious, although I know that that isn't necessarily true for all academics and that we're certainly in a moment where universities are getting quite a lot of criticism for the way that they're treating many of their staff so I'm not sure actually that this precariousness is necessarily that different to us what's the space that you work in like what's your home office like well as you can see in the background so we did an extension during the pandemic which is a great idea because then that meant that we only had two rooms to have the child 
the new puppy and myself and my partner who was working from home all in one space. Great. Um, but the extension, so I, I have kind of, you know, uh, it was planned before the pandemic, but now I have kind of carved out like a little bit of a space, a room for myself, which is a guest room, but still, you know, a proper office to have a little bit of a distance. So it's, it is attached to the house, but it's still, it has that, just that little bit of distance where I could kind of walk away from it. It's not in the bedroom. It's not right next to the bedroom. And so I could walk away from it and leave work in that corner and then kind of go off to do my family life at the end of the day which I think is really important and has really has so much benefits to my, my sanity <laughs> or work-life balance. Yeah, I often talk to people about how to create those boundaries, like those physical boundaries, without actually having a separate room in order to, to do it. And, you know, the idea of like putting everything in a box at the end of the day and closing the lid of the box or putting a sheet over the desk so that you can't effectively see the work in the same way. It's an imperfect solution, but it's still quite a good solution from a mental health point of view, I think. Let's get on to the book. I mean, I guess the first thing I wanted to address, which I think both of us agree on, is that flexible working in and of itself is no bad thing like the title of the book could could lead people to think that you're not a, not a fan of flexible working but I know you say you say it in the beginning and at the end of the book that that isn't true and I think one of the fascinating things is about saying we need to look at this stuff honestly and kind of clear-sightedly because otherwise we're going to make some fairly major mistakes as we adopt this new way of working in a more kind of wholesale fashion is that a fair assessment of where you stand on it? Yes, absolutely. And I do want to make it very clear, like, I'm a big fan of flexible working. I think everybody should be given that, you know, flexibility in the sense of giving workers more control over when and where they work. I think it is such an enabler that it allows people who really had a hard time accessing the labor market to access it. And again, you know, one of the reasons why I see, we see a lot of you know, workers, especially women, go into self-employment is just because of that flexibility that you can't get through other jobs that really enable people to take part in the labor market while not completely dismissing or ignoring the other aspects of their lives. And so it, it is it's a, it's an incredible enabler. Having said that, sometimes, and I'm not saying everyone, and I think increasingly we're being more aware of it, but there is some sort of an underlying assumption like, oh, flexible working, if you just do it, it'll be fine. And it's some sort of a magic bullet that would solve issues around work-life balance, worker well-being, and gender equality. And, you know, what the evidence I show in the book, as well as, you know, gathering evidence from across the world shows is that, no, actually it isn't. It isn't such a magic bullet. It really is an amplifier that, if you have a decent work-life balance culture, a decent work culture, maybe at the national or company level, and a really gender egalitarian kind of society or, or, or family life, then yes, this could be an amazing kind of thing to add on to all of that. But if you have a problematic work culture, if you have a problematic kind of work-life balance kind of uh, norm where, you know, workers are expected to work all the time and work long hours, and that's somehow perceived as being the image of a productive and committed worker. And if you're in a very traditional gender normative, maybe again, society or family, etc., like then it could actually really lead to, you know, much worse outcomes than perhaps where there wasn't any of that flexible working. 
Yeah. And so we have to make these assessments. We have to figure this stuff out before it becomes the way that we do things and kind of solidifies whether you're a solo worker or not. And I kept thinking as you were talking about, like, if you, if you live in a country where there's really great, <laughs> if you've got really yeah. great norms of behavior around work. And I was like, so Denmark. <laughs> so no, we, we basically need to be Denmark. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, it's because it's like, if you think about Denmark, there's a whole range of things. It's like, one is that they generally work fewer hours, very fewer, but also productive hours. Like, I think the general norm is to work from eight to four and everybody goes home at four. There's huge amount of kind of welfare state in terms of not only great childcare facilities, etc., but also workers have really great levels of protection. They have great holiday and other fringe benefits. The unions are strong. Even if you're unemployed, you get a huge amount of unemployment benefits. So there's that, there's less of that insecurity. So that in combination leads flexible working to be actually used for what it's supposed to be used for. So workers can really facilitate their kind of work-life balance through flexible working. And in Denmark or Sweden, in countries like that, because fathers are put at home to take care of children and in the early days of a child's life, there isn't such a kind of, you know, div, you know, gender division of labor where it's assumed it's always the mother that needs to take care of children. So mm. If you allow Danish men to work flexibly, they do pitch in and they use that flexibility to take care of children or do more at home. Whereas if you let, you know, let's say British or maybe German fathers to work flexibly, they don't. <laughs> they just end up working longer and harder yeah. because it's just assumed that, well, fathers are breadwinners. So if you work flexibly and especially if you feel like, oh, you know, you might not be perceived as such a you know productive worker then you're just gonna use that blurring of boundaries to work harder and longer and you know expand your work rather than contract it so it seems to me that there are two different ways in which self-exploitation as you as you call it through flexible work can happen that are slightly dependent on which gender you are or identify as but what's the kind of main the main way in which flexible working can lead to self-exploitation can you kind of describe the thesis in a nutshell. Okay. The idea is that if workers have control, more control over when and where you work, rather than managers kind of setting those out for you, you mm -hmm. assume that workers will expand their leisure. Now, the empirical evidence that we've gathered in the UK, in Germany, and colleagues have gathered across the world, what happens is that workers work longer and harder, you know, when they have that flexibility, that blurring of boundaries. There are various reasons behind it. So one is that workers are so grateful for that right to work flexibly or that gift of flexibility or like, oh, thank you for letting me work from home. You know what? To reciprocate, I'll, I'll give you, you know my extra hours because I don't have to commute and I, I'm saving four hours by not commuting. I'll give you back an hour, like for example. Another thing is workers work harder because they can. It's essentially, you know, if, if you give work, let workers work their most productive hours, they're able to kind of work better. And then another is that sometimes employers kind of use the back door. So when you have these very strict regulations of like work has to happen between nine and five, and if it's beyond that, you have to pay overtime premiums, et cetera. Employers are less likely to expand the workday. Whereas if you have flexible working and the boundaries are blurred, all of a sudden you could just pile on more work and it's project-based. So you don't actually need to be you know, restricted by that. Again, you know, because our culture is one where regardless of whether you're self-employed or employed, that everyone is in this hustle kind of culture. 
you feel like you have to always be working to make yourself marketable. You have to be, you know, also you have to have passion at your work. You have to be busy at work to feel that you have Mm self-worth. So when you blur the boundaries with work and family life, rather than work contracting and, you know, family or leisure time expanding, workers kind of end up working all the time. It's, It's a vicious cycle of Oh, when the boundaries are blurred, the work kind of expands. Oh, you do a little bit more, a little bit more, because that allows you to kind of do more and more. And everybody, you see everybody else do it, and you keep kind of going on to that circle. Long hours work does not necessarily mean productivity, motivation, or commitment, but we assume it is. All of us are like performing that long hours work, whether or not it is actually long hours or whether or not it is productive. Flexible working in that context, it just ends up with workers expanding work rather than contracting. And that's the first self-exploitation, if you want, especially in contexts where workers have fewer negotiation power, um, a weaker negotiation power. Workers have a lot of insecurity, maybe because the labor market's really you know, competitive, or it may be that if you lose a job, the welfare state doesn't provide you with any kind of benefits to rely on, and you're just put in that kind of individualized risk where you have to be the sole person responsible. In those scenarios, you're always kind of using that flexible boundaries to expand work because you have no other choice because everybody else is doing it. And then you come into that vicious cycle of everybody just being on all the time, hooked up to work. And what I say in terms of that gender paradox, though, is you see patterns like that for across the population, including mothers. The only problem is that mothers have less capacity to expand their work because they've already expanded their working hours as much as they can because there's only 24 hours in a day, seven days a week. And, you know, we're in societies where it is still the mothers who are expected to do the housework and the childcare and the mental load of managing everything, making sure that children, you know, that are being picked up and the school knows that the children are being picked up. You know, even <laughs> if you outsource some of the things, the amount of managing we need to do is, is mm. incredible. So there's just not enough hours in the day for women to expand their work as much as men or especially fathers can because there's just not enough hours in the day. So what you do have is... Women use flexibility to just essentially do everything. Like, so working from home, so women will multitask. So you'll do childcare and paid work at the same time, do more childcare and housework, but also working from home enables women to do more paid work as well because it it, it provides some access. So what essentially is being crowded out is, is leisure time, is rest time, and perhaps sleep. And so in a way, flexible working is great because otherwise you would have maybe not been able to work at all, but flexible working in a way enabled women's labor to be stretched to the max without disrupting national policies to support families, you know, without companies changing to, you know, properly support workers and families and without disrupting divisions of housework in the household. It's a really toxic situation. As I mentioned earlier, this season of The Solo Collective is sponsored by Tide. Tide has developed a platform for small businesses, which you can use without opening a bank account with them. It's called Cashflow Insights, 
Regardless of which bank you use for business banking, you can connect it to the Tide platform. And within 24 hours, you'll be getting insights such as cash flow predictions, credit score monitoring and advice about your income and outgoings. It can even tell you your credit status and help you look for business finance with no impact on your credit score. Connect your business bank account today to Tide and receive a £75 Uber or Uber Eats voucher. Limited availability. Terms and conditions apply. Download the app or Google Tide Cashflow Insights to find out more. One of our sponsors this season is Pension B, a way to make setting up a self-employed pension easier. They do a pension specifically for self-employed people, so you can vary your contributions according to your income. One of the things that puts us solo workers off getting a pension is feeling like we won't always be able to afford to contribute. But this way, you can put in lump sums when you get paid for that big job, or trickle money in when things feel a little more precarious. Only 24% of self-employed people contribute into a private pension, even though in the UK, the government will top up our contributions. Go to pensionb.com slash self-employed pension to find out more. Download the app or head to pensionb.com for more information. Your capital is at risk. Maybe you could also expand a bit on what the impact is on men. And I realise we're talking in a very heteronormative way yeah. here, but that's kind of where the majority of the research has, has happened mm. in the last 50 years, presumably. But it's not as though men are necessarily winning in this situation either, right? Because the research that you've gathered suggests that they are working longer hours and yeah. also having to conform to rather kind of hyper-masculine yeah. ideals, really. And I, I always say, like, you know, you know, women are not or mothers are not necessarily the only victims of this. It's like fathers, mm. men, young men, children are all victims of it. If you look at surveys like fathers, young men, it's all want to really take part, take more part in childcare, especially, especially the enrichment childcare that's like playing and doing education with children. But also, you know, they do want to pitch in more. But they can't because, as I said, the labor market is still structured so that you know, you need to really hustle and you have to put those long hours in, you have to show face to be able to survive. And this is why men, you know, would expand their, their working hours when working flexibly, especially because there's still that kind of negative connotation towards flexible workers as, you know, slacking off. So if you were to work flexibly, you need to even like perform longer hours just to make sure that you, over, you know, overcompensate just in case there is any kind of negative connotation of you working flexibly. Mm. And for men, it's much more consequential if they are penalized, if they were to work flexibly, because they are still perceived as the breadwinners. And if you look at majority of couples, given the gender pay gap is about 20% in the UK, it will be the men who are the breadwinners of the family and have the financial burden on their shoulders, which means that they can't risk getting any kind of career, you know, risk any career penalties because their career penalties or income loss is detrimental or much more detrimental to the family compared to, let's say, what would happen to mothers. Mm. It's actually, it's not the men, it's, it's, it's organizations, but it's also the larger society, societal norm. Without us really, again, reflecting back on like, okay, what is work? What should workers do or should look like? How should we define productivity or commitment? Or in how, you know, who should really take care of children? Really changing all of those ideas. You can't expect workers, including men, to behave otherwise because they're constrained as well. Women are constrained because of all these societal norms about what they should be doing. But men as well. Men are constrained in that 
responsibility of a breadwinner,、mm. where you know the financial sustainability of the household is largely on their shoulders. Yeah, it's really interesting, and I think it's really fascinating how deep this stuff goes and affects you way before you've even thought about whether you want to have a family. And what I, there's a conversation that you and I had in our first ever conversation, I think, which has stuck with me, and I've I've referred to and thought about so many times, where I said quite smugly, "Of course, you know, my setup is fine because coincidentally, as it happens, I work very flexibly, so I can do a lot of the taking up the slack in terms of the childcare and the house management and that kind of thing." My husband ha- happens coincidentally to have a job which is highly inflexible. He's a photographer. When he's on a job, he's on a job. He's completely absent. His hours are not particularly controllable, and he'll come home when the job finishes. And you said to me, and I was like, "That and that's just happened. That isn't aren't we lucky? Aren't we terribly <laughs> lucky to have arranged it like that by coincidence?" And you were like, "Yeah." <laughs> Or yeah. did you make choices as a young person? Where you created a career framework for yourself, where flexibility was a kind of inbuilt factor, and did your husband never have to consider that? Like you did not contemplate becoming any kind of job that you wouldn't have been able to do flexibly, and that's true. And I actually remember very clearly thinking about doing the foreign office exams when I finished my international relations degree brackets that I have never used, and thinking I won't do that because. The commitment would be to spend a third of my working life abroad, and I can't see how I would figure that with this at at that point completely mythical idea of a partner and a family in the future, which didn't happen for another decade after that decision was taken. But it wasn't until I had that conversation with you that I that I thought, oh, yeah, gender norms are alive and well and living in my head. <laughs> yeah, and I'm making decisions based upon what. My expectation of my future life might look like, and I have thought about that so many times subsequently, and it has come up in my head when we've been having arguments about how my husband、yeah. and I have been having arguments about how to split the split the family load. And to be fair to him, he's quite unusual as a as a bloke and does a does a huge amount more. But it's still not equitable because you know、no. that, that's a very very difficult thing to achieve. So I'm I'm grateful for that. <laughs> But- yeah, I mean, if I could maybe kind of you know enable not just women but also men to have a little pause about like wait a minute how do how are we doing things and why that would be amazing. And to be honest, you know, again, you know, the choices you made in terms of occupations and the types of occupations you chose because you know consciously or unconsciously. Thinking about the potential of having to kind of balance work with childcare, etc., isn't you know is is not you know you are very unique, but you know your choice wasn't very unique. That, you know, <laughs> I'm a special snowflake. Yeah, yes. no, it was like majority <laughs> of women, and I speak to I you know I give lectures to 150 kind of students. The majority of them are, are women, and you know they you know 19, 20 year olds are already thinking about this, and that is in their psyche、mm. because it's just assumed. But the the irony is like. A lot of men, especially younger men, and I, you know, younger, I say millennial kind of fathers who has young children, also want to pitch. And it's not like not necessarily mm-hmm, all mm-hmm. the time, and maybe not necessarily the, <laughs> doing the laundry and, and and dishes, but they do at least want to take part more part in childcare and work less. It's just they are unable to because a lot of the jobs that are especially lucrative. Do not come with that kind of flexibility, and、mm-hmm. because again, you know, 
you know, when you were thinking about, oh, what job will be uh, enable me to do this and that, a lot of men were like, okay, I even if I want to do this, what job will make more money, right? They a lot of men will have to think, okay, what's gonna be able to give me more financial or job stability? Because especially in heterosexual couples, that they are, you know, even consciously or unconsciously, they are assuming kind of that role. But having said that, one of the things I am a little bit hopeful about is the pandemic because a lot of managers of male workers in very, let's say, even masculine organizations such as the financial sector were really abdomen that work had to be done in the office. Work had to be done in the certain times so between for the financial sectors between nine and six, nine and, nine and seven o'clock. And everybody had to be in the office at that time. And that's how work is, is done. But of course, the pandemic completely altered this and allowed so many people who never really had that opportunity to work flexibly, to work incredibly flexibly, and also show that they were able to maintain, if not enhance their productivity during this period where it was the pandemic, which, you know, you, it, it was amazing if anyone got any work done, but, you know, workers were actually being more productive. And whether or not that may change some of the landscape, especially for men moving forward so that they're going to be more flexible is, is, is something that we need to kind of observe and also not just observe, but also keep fighting back because, what I see now with the pandemic being over and, you know, you know, in quotation marks <laughs> and, you know, the government, but also, you know, like a lot of businesses kind of wanting to like get things back to normal again, normal in quotation marks, is that they're trying to revert back to their old ways without really, you know, using any of the learning, pro you know, that they've done in the past two years. You know, pandemic was horrible, but then we did a lot of kind of, we learned a lot of lessons in the past two years in terms of what is possible in terms of working and also fathers being more involved in housework and childcare and also fathers presenting themselves as fathers, which is something we find in the data. You know, a lot of times mothers have to present themselves as mothers because, you know, you're pregnant, you can't really hide it. Even if you were to get a job after you had the baby, there's a level of people knowing that you're a mom because that you, you have to do a lot of things. Whereas fathers kind of sail through without any of that. Like they could just kind of sail through as a worker without no one knowing if whether they have a spouse or a child or any of that. But during the pandemic, they had to because like kids were just in Zooms, you know, kids, you had like, you had to do it. And because both parents, you know, had to work, like fathers had to be involved some way or another. And that really changed the kind of norm about what, male workers are when workers are not just workers male workers are also fathers there are children who have elderly parents or disabled relatives they are people with other responsibilities outside of work it's interesting because as we talk we could sort of sound a bit as though we're using kind of i was going to say cliches but you know those kind of ideas of what a male worker might be and a female worker might be and what a father might be and what a mother might be and it, it might feel to people listening as though I don't know slightly old-fashioned ways of thinking about people but I guess what I want to emphasize is that what you're talking about is based on reams and reams of data and like a decade of mm. research so this isn't a conversation about like oh isn't it bad that men feel like they have to be masculine or whatever this is mm. actually based on a huge amount of solid research right yeah 
So, you know, again, the evidence is that when men work flexibly, when they have flexible schedules or work from home, they're much more likely to increase their overtime hours or working hours. Women increase their housework hours. Perhaps not necessarily in surveys like, oh, do you think men should be this or that? You know, people won't say it. But if you look at the behavioral patterns, you know, and in, in, if you look at large scale household data, women still carry out more than 70% of housework. And majority of the women are the ones that are responsible for childcare. And you know, there is a difference between the perception of men and women on this. But yeah, this isn't necessarily what we're saying should happen. But it's just, it, it is just what our current society is like, despite the fact that we think we've made huge advances in, in terms of gender role attitudes about women and women's role. But at the end of the day, if you look at the actual behaviors of men and women, you know, it is still very conservative. You know, one of the attitude surveys that I can say has a really clear evidence of this is if you ask like the British public, when a child, you know, preschool child under the age of five, what kind of working patterns should men and women have, so mothers and fathers have? And about less than 5% of the population says women should work full-time. So majority of the population, so 95%, believe that it should be mothers either not working or working part-time. Five, A bit more than 5%, but it, you know, it changes. But essentially, is people believe fathers should work full-time, mothers should work part-time or not at all. That's yeah. where we are at the moment. But yeah, having said that, and again, another thing to say is majority of fathers say they would like to work flexibly going in the future to take care of children. A lot of fathers, I think more than half the fathers in our survey said they would like to actually even decrease their working hours and possibly work part time to, to be able to spend more time with their family and children. So the demand is there, but, you know, we our, our social structures and norms are still a bit old fashioned. And I think, you know, although some of this stuff is highly gendered, there are, there are some interesting kind of blurrings. And I'm not saying they're necessarily what I'm about to say is a positive thing. It's not a positive thing. But like, I'm thinking about Kim Kardashian, for example, and her thing about, you know, everybody has the same 24 hours in a day, just get off your butt and work. And there's so much to unpack as regards to that. But specifically thinking about ideas around gender it feels as though there is a certain group of women who are adopting these quite masculine working tropes mm. and that's not that's not the gender parity that I'm aiming for <laughs> um, but that's an interesting way in which it's not totally black and white right there's there are mm. some kind of some gray areas where things are not quite so clear I mean, and the other thing is, you know, we talk about flexible working and, and, and everything. And, and I, I talked about how like women are being exploited because women are expected to work like men, but also at home be like the mother and and the housewife as well. So mm -hmm. like you know, women are, are being asked to do like two jobs that used to be, you know, what used to be two or maybe three persons job back in 1950s because... You're asking women to work full-time hours, and full-time hours have actually increased rather than decreased in countries like the U.S. and the U.K. Mm -hmm. You're asking mothers to like almost do as much, you know, not necessarily housework, but more childcare than you know we used to do in the 1950s, because especially with mothers and especially with you know a bit more higher educated mother, there's this notion of intensive parenting, like oh you need to spend time with children, you need to you know make sure like. Little Johnny's whole, you know, day schedule, like extracurricular activity, play days mm. are all like optimized. Otherwise, you know, Johnny's, I'm sorry for any parent who's 
actual child's name is Johnny. I have no offenses to Johnny's, but you know, um, but you know that it has to be optimized to the max. So we're actually seeing parents, especially mothers, spend more time with their children compared to 1950. So it's, mm-hmm. this is really untenable. You know, rather than make women be more like men in the labor market, like we should try to get men to be more like women in the household. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, everybody should be doing less of everything. Like, why are we making one person do two people's job? Like, both mm-hmm. people do two people's job. Why don't men also work part time? Let's just get men to work part time. So, rather than trying to stop women from being penalized from working part time, let's just get the men to do it. Then that will mm-hmm. just solve the problem because we'll all be working part time or three, four days a week. Essentially not glorifying these long hours hustle culture Mm -hmm. is really crucial because a evidence shows that it's not actually productive or efficient use of our time and that rest and leisure is really important and b we're like really exploiting people to the max to the point where you you know we are pushing them into you know potential dangerous territories in terms of well-being and work-life balance Or excluding people because, you know, one of the groups that we are excluding are, you know, women with care responsibilities, but also maybe people with disabilities or other kind of care responsibilities. Yeah. So that takes me on to my final question, really, which is, how do we fix this? In the book, I actually kind of write down in the last chapter, like, what should countries do? What should companies do? And and what should families do? But the main thing, if I were to just say it in one sentence, that we have to change our work culture you know, the way we look at work-life balance or prioritize work and our gender roles or gender norms. And how do we do that? One is like, I'm again, a big proponent of the four-day week or shorter working hours. I think the whole 40 plus, you know, a lot of UK workers work 48 plus hours is only tenable if there's only one person working and someone else in the household does all the reproductive work. And at the moment, due to financial insecurity and income, you know, the decline of actual income in the past kind of decade and a half, you do have to have two people work. So you can't squeeze in that many work, you know, paid or unpaid work within a couple. <laughs> it's just not possible. And this is why we see such a high level of burnout and overwork and, and, and problems with mental health. So let's just change that that norm and say everybody work four day a week. So that will help us kind of stop flexible working from being problematic because again, that long hour hustle culture is one of the key problems of why flexible working leads to bad outcomes. One thing that we need to do is change gender norms about whose responsibility is is to care. And one of the best ways forward is to get fathers more involved in childcare from the very early days of a child's life. So between zero and one, maybe two really highly paid earmarked paternity leave daddy leaves if you want for at least like three to six months and I mean that's a societal level as well but you know also at the company level when you're introducing flexible working and even if you're a solo worker and you're you're self-employed you really need to have better ways of measuring productivity because we just assume that bums on seat in front of computer is productivity so it's like oh the number of hours you do equates to outcomes and I think those who are entrepreneurs probably know this a bit better that that's absolutely not the case especially if you're doing knowledge creative work the number of hours put in does not necessarily equate to outcomes so 
you know, in companies, for example, then you really need to try to find better ways of measuring output and key performance indicators to really try to highlight then what needs to be done and how do we measure it so that people who are able to really efficiently use their time and find ways, again, with the control over their, you know, when and where they work, know how to best work themselves to meet those targets are rewarded accordingly. Because at the moment, essentially our system is one where we reward people based on no long hours in the office, bums on seat, regardless of what they actually produce. And that's, one, again, one of the reasons why flexible working results in longer and harder working. Within the family, also having, as you say, these kind of really difficult conversations with partners to try to figure out who's doing what, but also how you can change it. And in a way, a lot of men need to really have that very difficult conversation with their managers about adapting their work to fit with family demands. And, you know, a sur surprise, surprise, majority of women already do that. Or they go and search out, as you say, jobs that are already kind of facilitating. And, you know, men haven't done that yet. Again, you know, due to a lot of that kind of pressure of needing to be the financial kind of breadwinner. Pandemic has provided us that opportunity to think actually men can and should also be, you know, a carer and is a father or a son or, or brother, whatever it is, that they are in a position where they also need to have those and somewhat difficult conversations. And, and I guess finally, if I were to, you know, to say one thing, it's like flexible working again, you know, and this is something that is, is, is the same, you know, I'm, I'm very reflective of myself as well. So, you know, through flexible working, I try to kind of combine like full-time work with childcare, being an involved mom and at this and that. So and it enabled me and other people to squeeze a lot in, like a lot yeah. of, you know, work and, it's, it's it, we need to maybe think about whether that's a good thing. It's like maybe, you know, hustle in not just at work, but also at life. You know, we're, we're hustling too much to achieve too much. And digital technologies and all sorts of, you know, flexible working and other things have allowed us to really fit a lot in in a day. Perhaps we need to think about rest a bit more. As much as we have that vicious cycle of, overwork, always being available, always being on at work. I think we have that same culture in our private lives. And I kind of feel like, yeah, let's maybe have a little reflection of whether we need to do that. Like, what is that doing to us well-being? What is it doing to our society? What is it doing to our environment? And also, what is that doing to our children? Like, is that achieving, achieving, achieving everything, something that we really want our future generations to do thank you so much this has been such a great and illuminating conversation i'm really grateful that we were able to have it oh thank you for having me i really love the work that he jung does i think it's really valuable to begin to have conversations for both women and for men about the way that work slots into our lives and how it can kind of inform our decisions about how we care and who for and when and what we do outside of work. I think that the emphasis she puts on fathers and male carers is really interesting too because that part of the conversation probably hasn't been had enough. This stuff influences 
everybody who has a caring role in any setup of family. And it's kind of worth, I think, stepping back and looking at what the setup that you have looks like and to what extent things have sort of happened rather than being decided upon. So I'm grateful to her for raising all this stuff. I still have a lot of work to do on this kind of thing in my own life. If you want to find out more about Heejung, you should go to her website, which is heejungchung.com, or you can find her on Twitter, heejungchung. And her brilliant book is called The Flexibility Paradox, Why Flexible Working Leads to Self-Exploitation. If you want to find out more about me, you can find me on Instagram at bexseal, B-E-X seal. And if you want to find out more about solo working, there's lots on my website, howtoworkalone.com. This series is brilliantly produced by Hester Kant.